Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand in your life that had an impact on you? I had a really special relationship with Pop-Tarts. So it was my the snack that I uh, had when I got as home. As early as you can remember. As early? Yeah. I mean, this, yeah. Is, this is pretty, pretty early days. Frosted or unfrosted? No. So this is the thing. So <laughs> only unfrosted, and it was blueberry. And the, uh, and, and the problem is you can't get them anymore. So blueberry unfrosted. So hopefully the Kellogg's- Discontinued. Yeah, yeah, discontinued. I've looked for it. I, I've even gone on Amazon. Like They don't carry it. Nobody, nobody carries it. So unfrosted blueberry. And it kind of really put a pinch on my relationship with my mom because they were 99 cents for a long time. And then I think, I think I got to like, I don't know, like fifth, sixth grade and somebody, some smart brand manager figured out that they could jack up the price to a buck and a quarter and then quickly to a buck 50. And all of a sudden, like Pop-Tarts weren't making into the cupboard as uh, frequently. And so my mom and I had to have a sit down discussion about, you know, how sometimes it's not just about the price. But about sometimes like how it makes you there feel, you mom. An early marketing lesson <laughs> An early right, marketing for your mom. Like, yeah, 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 exactly. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Maurice Herrera. Maurice is the SVP and CMO of the Americas for Avis Budget Group, which by the way, also owns Payless and Zipcar. In this episode of the CMO podcast, Maurice begins with his MBA from Michigan Ross, and we walk through his career. He worked at a lot of legacy food companies like Pepsi and Mondelez. Then he went to Weight Watchers when Oprah Winfrey was making an investment. And we talked an awful lot about this concept of stratocution, where strategy comes together with execution. Strategy feeds execution, and through executing, you learn about strategy. Here's my conversation with Maurice Herrera. First thing I want to say to you is you earned your MBA at Michigan Ross about 20 years ago. And my son, twenty years, boy. That my hurts. son is a second year MBA at Ross right now. Oh, that's awesome. So, go blue. Was it go a great blue. experience for you? Yeah, no, it really, it really was. And in fact, I've what'd got you a, study uh, for my MBA? Was that general management, general corporate, management, corporate yeah. strategy? So I went to Binghamton for my undergrad, mm-hmm. um, and I played on the basketball team. But so all that to say that I needed to go. I, I really needed to go to a school where, uh, where, where you could I, not play in the basketball team. I could not team. play in the basketball team. So no, I mean, Michigan just offers 
so many different things I, from an academic standpoint, from a social standpoint, the, uh, you know, the big time sports. And so uh, it was great. And then I think one out of every four people that are graduating from the MBA program were going into brand management. And I kind of knew that I, that's what I wanted to do. So yeah, Michigan was a great fit. And I've got a, my second son is, is got his eyes on Michigan. So oh, fantastic. if an admissions person's listening to this, keep an eye out for a Herrera resume. Please. And you have four kids, right? And I've, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I've so. been accused of being crazy. No. On many levels, but yeah. I'm one of six kids. kids. And my wife's one of 11, so I get it. Don't worry. My dad's one of 12. There you go. All right. We only have two. (laughs) One's at Ross, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you went from Ross to CPG. Your first job was? Uh, My first job was uh, overseeing the Hungry Jack pancake syrup. Um, It was great. It was was, like... Kind of a, a, a brand that nobody paid General a Mills. whole lot. Yeah, General no, so, so Pillsbury yeah. before the Pillsbury yeah, General right. Mills thing went down. So I started at Pillsbury and started on that franchise. And it was, it was great because I could do a lot with these brands because there wasn't a whole lot of attention being paid to those brands. And so I managed this little Hungry Jack syrup bottle, which was the only microwavable bottle. And so there was, uh, I just did a little on the fly research and this notion of like warm syrup tastes better. It sure does. All of a sudden, like Still all of a insight. sudden I could compete with the big guys from this little kind of feature that really nobody was talking about. So all of a sudden I could come up with, a, I came up with a claim with the team on something that I could kind of go after the big guys with, literally and figuratively the big guys because they couldn't fit into the microwave. Um, so yeah, so it was uh, a good time. And then from there I went to be the brand manager of Tosa Strudel where I put on probably about five pounds. Uh, <laughs> but you were happy In, in the first that. six months, yeah, yeah. Which was interesting because I love Pop-Tarts. Growing up, Pop-Tarts were my thing. So you fast forward 20 years later, the fact that I was, Managing the Tosa Strudel brand, where the tagline was like a Pop Tart but better, it kind of came full circle. You only gained somewhere. five pounds. <laughs> exactly. I only gained five pounds. My first brand of PNG was Duncan Hines cookies. We were taking on Nabisco and Frito Lay with the packaged cookie. I, I gained like 20 pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just ate like 20 cookies a day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Trying all the new stuff out of the bakery. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah. And then I went to go manage the, the Pillsbury uh, refrigerated baked goods line. The cookies, the crescents, the biscuits. Yeah, I think I put on about 10 pounds so during good. that run. Yeah. So you have had a really interesting career. So I'm just going to reel off some of the General Mills, of course, we're talking about, then Campbell's, Mondelez, PepsiCo. So very strong roots in food, CPG. Then Weight Watchers. Yeah, yeah. With Oprah Winfrey, about the time she was investing, you went there. Yep. And Mindy Grossman was the CEO who made her fame at HSN. And now Avis Budget Group, which includes Zipcar. Mm-hmm. Incredible career path. So is there a defining experience in that career path that you can reflect upon That's was a kind of a leadership milestone for you? The, the, the one great experience that I had was when I was a brand manager and then senior brand manager at Campbell's Soup. So I, I had the privilege of running the Campbell's condensed soup business. So that was the darling of the company, chicken noodle and the, you know, chicken noodle yep. and tomato. And... That was a business that had been on a top and bottom line decline for 30 years. For 30 years, with the exception of during the time period of soup is good food, which happened in the early 80s. So I think one of the things that I've done in my career is taken on these iconic franchises and really just interrogated them about and, and gotten into like, when have those brands been at their best? When have they been at their worst? And so you study their history. Study their yeah. history and just really understood the whys behind those successes and, and those times when they've really struggled. And you know, Doug Conant was very big the CEO on, at the time. CEO yep. at the time was really big on um, really promoting this notion of that the definition of insanity 
is to continue to do the same thing over and over and over again and expect different results. And so being on that business, what I interrogated was that our mom-oriented efforts, the iconic chicken noodle soup, you know, the snowman creative that still still is to this day like a very like it's a very cherished, you know, piece of content. I was never going to come up with the the I was never going to top that. Like going um gaining mom's attention and getting them to be an even bigger fan of soup and condensed soup specifically. That was not the key to success. The key to success was maybe just maybe going after kids and talking to kids about the merits of soup. There's a lot of pushback at the company at the time because people said, are people really going to ask? Yeah, moms kids, make the decision. Yeah, moms make cetera, the decision. Are kids really yeah. going to ask for soup? Are they going to be able to open the can? Are they going to be allowed to you know, be near the stove? So I became the crazy one that was thinking about maybe just maybe uh, going after kids marketing. But then from a critical thinking standpoint, what we did is we, we interrogated why the business was down. And the reason why it was down is because we were losing two simple meals along the lines of SpaghettiOs and you know, the Chef Boyardee products and Lunchables because kids were asking for those products and it's because they were being talked to. And so partnering with the likes of Nickelodeon and so on and so forth, and all of a sudden making soup a hero amongst kids really changed the trajectory of that business. And, and by the time I left, we took about half of our spending, half of our investment, and it was oriented towards uh, kids marketing. So we had new products, we had a top five website, and we had a narrative that was just, um, it was just awesome. Like a very campaignable idea mm-hmm. that survived like three years and it really changed the trajectory on that business. So interrogating the business, championing the idea, not sort of just embracing being called the crazy one mm-hmm. because you, be, knowing that you've got the critical thinking and the dependable point of view on your side is something that to me has, has served me really well. And yeah. also looking at what other brands were doing, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, 100%. widening your lens, seeing, yeah. you know, and, and uh, just being curious. Being curious. Looking yeah. around. And it was also a feel-good moment because what better opportunity than actually talking to kids about a good-for-you proposition? And as it turns out, they would, call, you know, they would talk to you and say, I love soup. Mm-hmm. I actually love soup. I just don't even have to ask for it, though. My, I know my mom's going to buy it. But all of a sudden, getting them to the game sure. was, like, pretty powerful. Sure. You've worked for so many of these legacy food companies, right? Which are challenged again, yeah. right? Their portfolio may not be as relevant as it once was. So if you were running a legacy food company right now, what would you do? Wow. There's if I dropped a... you in as CEO of any one of these legacy companies, yeah, where would you start? I mean, I think it starts where I, I think I always start, which is like, who is that strategically valued customer or consumer that we want to gain the heads and hearts of? And so I think that's where you start. And then you start interrogating, you know, that brand and that, um, yeah, that, that brand and, and understanding like at its core, at its DNA, what, what is its value proposition? What is it that people love about it? And then just fusing those two things together and starting to create the right narrative to, you know, garner attention and interest and, uh, and loyalty. So just, I just think that in, in today, like right now, everybody's chasing content um, that garners attention, but mm-hmm. I think it feels a bit like we've lost the due diligence around strategy and what is it that we're trying, who is it that we're trying to address and, and, what's, and, and the why behind why they should really pay attention to you and your narrative and your proposition. And so I think more than ever, I think strategy is, strategy is and incredibly fundamentals. and fundamentals are important. Yeah. A lot of the companies are doing uh, partnerships acquisitions, buying trendy brands, growing brands. You know, you probably did a bit of that yourself when you were back in those companies. Yeah. Do you think that's smart? Do you think that's necessary? 
Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, you know, for you know, during my time at Weight Watchers, partnering with cruise lines, partnering with wines, I think in, in terms of really expanding the footprint of the proposition and the reach towards the, you know, the right audiences. Yeah, I think those strategic partnerships are, are spot on. Yeah. You were at Weight Watchers for four years. I was. Before you went to Avis Budget. Yeah. And it was a great run, right? Yeah. Business, stock price. Really great journey. Yeah. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Oprah came in as a big investor. She's done very well with her investment. You had a new CEO come in. So tell me what, what that was like. You know, what did you learn there as a leader, as a marketer, as a brand builder? I'll start with like one of the. And you changed your name too, really, in that time, right? Uh, yeah. WW. Well, behind the scenes, yeah. we were we had referred to it as WW yeah. Dub Dub yeah. Uh, amongst the tribe. Yeah. Uh, but from an outward facing standpoint, from a consumer facing standpoint, we had not gone to WW just yet. Um, you know what? What I kind of the big learning for me was needing to unlearn a lot from my CPG playbook, because in 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 the wellness category and in the weight loss category. It's not so much of a positioning model as much as it is an inspiration model. Hmm. Like you're, you know, these are these are folks who have placed a lot of bets in their prior weight loss journey, and they've lost a lot of those bets. So it's not so much about informing them and educating them as much as it is really about inspiring people to take action. Because for a lot of them, they've they, you know they had placed a lot of bets and they've lost it. So for me, the big learning was to really unlearn a lot of my CPG um, kind of playbook because it just didn't apply. And um, I mean, maybe one of the more untold kind of tidbits, as, as you asked me about, was I was the one that put in the call to Ari Emanuel and, and asked him about, you know, the opportunity that may, you know, that may exist for Oprah and whether or not the timing might be right for us as a, as a company, because we were embarking on some innovation and reframing the so company is, and the proposition. What, what, and so how'd you get that idea? What pitching him on the to idea. Do that? What? Well, we knew strategically where we were going, which was going, we were going beyond the scale. And in fact, we launched an innovation called Beyond the Scale. And so what Beyond the Scale meant was it was beyond the number on the scale, it was beyond the food, but rather expanding the footprint of Weight Watchers to be about also moving more as well as taking on a more positive mindset. So when the narrative came about about taking on a more positive mindset, you start to think about, well, who may be out there to help promote the larger footprint of Weight Watchers as a proposition beyond the weight and beyond the scale and beyond food. And so pitching that idea to Ari, one thing quickly led to another, and I became part of the Fab Five team that got on the corporate jet and had some you know, really great discussions with Oprah and her team, and one thing led to another. What compelled her to join you? Uh, I think the timing was, I think the timing was really great. I think, you know, wellness was always something that was incredibly important to her. And I think one of the very admirable things about Oprah is that she really only gets involved with things where there's a, um, where, where her intentions are truly genuine and where her head and her heart, if they're in that particular place in that particular time. And I, and I think the timing was, was really great. I think where we were going strategically and where she was in terms of you know, her life, it, there was a really great fit in terms of bringing those, you know, th- those two things together. I know she was an investor, but what, what do you think she added to the business in terms of strategy? Yeah, no, she was, she was very involved. Um, she, she was very involved. She still continues to be very involved. And, and I think her true belief in the proposition and what Weight Watchers can do for individuals as well as just even the world, I think is something that she truly believes in. You know, and I've, I've dealt with, um, you know, quite a number of celebrities in, in my career. 
And I think one of the things that was incredibly and is incredibly admirable about Oprah is that, you know, she's she is very, very genuine in terms of her intentions. And, um, you know, she will even say publicly, like, I am not a spokesperson. And as you can imagine, as a marketer, that can sometimes be a challenge. Um, but for me, it was it was a really great learning experience and something I'm really grateful for. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. So you were coming in about the time Oprah was coming in to the brand, and Mindy Grossman came in, I think, a little bit later Yep, as CEO. She came from HSN. So how did that team gel? You know, all these things are academic unless a team comes together and has one vision for the brand and one voice and works together well. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did that happen at Weight Watchers? I mean, I think it's about the strategy. I think if you can align to that overarching vision, um, and I think, you know, Mindy's been very public about that, about really setting forth, like, what is that overarching vision? What is that purpose? And therefore, all the decision-making that comes about gets put through a, a purpose filter, and it's a very public filter. It's one that's it was shared internally, as well as it was shared with external agency partners and vendor partners. And so it was very public. It was very much aligning, not just internally, but externally. What was running. that purpose and how did you come to it? When, when I was there, it was about changing your relationship with food for good. Um, for good, meaning a nudge towards healthier eating, um, as well as, you know, just, um, you know, being more choiceful, being more mindful in terms of your relationship with food. But then, you know, when... and and I left just as the time that Mindy was coming on board. And so she elevated it in terms of healthier eating habits for at the individual level, as well as just at the, at the more global level. So she elevated it. So again, when I was there, it was very much about changing the relationship with food, because at, at the end of the day, it's, it is that relationship with food that to a large extent is what's going to affect you know, your, um, your weight. And, and, and so it's been an evolution about like, how do you then elevate that beyond just food and beyond the relationship with food, but to something even bigger than that. What did you do to bring that to life inside the company? You know, because obviously, you know, if you're going to yeah, have yeah, a yeah. purpose that you share with customers, that's some, that makes a difference somehow in their life. Obviously, you're inside the company. People need to believe it, think about it, act on it. Anything you did that was interesting for our listeners and bringing the purpose to life inside with, with Weight Watchers employees? And associates and partners. Yeah, I mean, one of one of the things that was really powerful is bringing our own member base. So, from an influencer standpoint, we had we had you know one of the best influencers that you could ever imagine in Oprah. But we also had an amazing tribe of individuals who had succeeded, and it was truly a gift to have the tribe of of members that had succeeded because different maybe than in in many other categories when you succeed on Weight Watchers, you feel like you've succeeded in life. And you know, as I mentioned before, that you had placed various bets on yourself and you had lost that bet. Now you've won. And so now that you've won that bet, you wanna pay that forward. You wanna spread the word. You wanna spread you know, how you succeeded, how it's made you 
feel. And so that was truly a gift. So a lot of our influence and marketing was really where we put on a pedestal these incredible and amazing, you know, stories when you when you hear about somebody and it's for the first time in a long time that they're able to put on their wedding band on their finger or that necklace that they'd gotten as an anniversary present. I mean, that is powerful. that is it's powerful, it's genuine and and it really serves a a, a purpose. Um, you, you feel obligated to pay it forward because you've succeeded. And, and from an empathy standpoint, um, the tribe wants to pay that forward. And, and it's, it's truly powerful. So, so we would bring our members into even our, our headquarters on 6th Ave and, and 22nd Street. Like we would bring them into the building and we would have them talk about their personal story. And I mean, it would bring tear to your eyes and then I'd get back to the office and I'd be more revved up than ever to, to get it done and, and to, to promote these narratives in a way that was going to inspire action amongst those people that needed it. Did this change you and how you think about food and your family? I mean, you look like you're fit. You're in shape. I mean, was... it's, it's the jacket, I think. Yeah, no, I, a hundred percent. Like I, I will never eat a slice of pizza or uh, have a treat without being more mindful about it and just enjoy it more. You know, I think one of the great things about Weight Watchers is that it, it's, it's not about deprivation. And I think the, the prevailing insight is that one believes that in order to lose weight, that you need to deprive yourself. You know, there's kind of like no, no pain and therefore no gain, meaning no gain in terms of, of, of being successful. And, and at Weight Watchers, it's just the opposite. It's like you, you can, that's, that's the kind of the, the, the magic sauce, which is like you can actually still have these foods that you love, which for me is pizza, which is why I love being a New Yorker because actually it's really hard to get a bad slice of pizza. So, so yeah, so just being more mindful. I mean, one of the main reasons why people are overweight and two out of every three Americans are overweight in this country is, is out of boredom. And out of these kind of mindless rituals, it's like, oh, there's a ball game on. I'm not hungry, but there's a ball game on. So let's order the, you know, let's order the food. Let's order the pizza. Let's order the wings, even though you may not actually have an appetite. And so mindless and, and mindless eating and, being, and eating because you're bored is, is one of the biggest culprits. And so ha- taking on a more mindful approach towards food is, is awesome. You know, you, you enjoy it more. Um, and, and then in the process, you, you start to lose some of the weight. I appreciate the appreciate the compliment, though. <laughs> I, great. I still feel like I can lose some, you know, about ten pounds. So let's let's go. Let's talk about uh, your current role. Yeah. At Avis Budget now, you you know, let me let's go back to when you moved there. So you were at Weight Watchers, very hot, trendy brand, doing very well, working with Oprah, and then you went to what some might consider a more boring brand. Yeah. Right. Car rental business. Mm-hmm. So. And I don't think it's a boring category. We'll get into that in a minute. Yep. I'm sure you don't either. Yeah. But why did you make the move? What was interesting about it? What was compelling? Yeah. How'd you make that decision? And then once you made that decision, how'd you get started? Yeah. So I, I really embrace the opportunities to be a change agent. And I, I really love tackling big problems and making the big changes to the things that are going to matter. And so Avis is an iconic brand. I mean, it's, you know, we try harder is a set of words that didn't serve just as a tagline. It served as a sense of purpose for the entire organization. You know, and in talking to agency partners, when they, you know, they've told me, it was like, when I've gone to ad school, like it's one of the case studies that we would, you know, that we would read about. And so it's actually been really good, like talking to agency partners that want to get involved with these brands like Avis and Budget and, and Zipcar. 
and uh, and yeah, and mobility is going through a revolution. So being a change agent in a category that's going through a revolution is something that really, really sparked to me. And then as from a marketing standpoint, this is this is an organization that that is thinking about how can marketing play a bigger role in terms of really reasserting these great iconic brands. And, and for me, that's a, that's a tremendous opportunity because um, I, I love change and, and I love iconic brands. So what is marketing at Avis Budget? I mean, if I, you had to put it into buckets, what is the work there and what is your work? Um, yeah, so right now it's, uh, it's, we're, we're going through a, a lot of change in terms of what it has meant and what it, it, is, it is going to mean for the organization. Um, to a large extent, like we were a service organization. We were satisfying the needs of a great many stakeholders within the company. And, and now we're really pivoting towards really reasserting, like what are these brands? Asserting why Avis? Why budget? So you're back to positioning work, right? Back to positioning work, yeah. And really understanding the who, like who is that strategically valued customer that first and foremost we have to be thinking about. And, and the, you know, what, what are those unmet needs? What are those narratives that they need and want to hear from you in order to either reconsider you or make you the choice, um, you know, time and again, particularly amongst those, uh, those frequent travelers. Mm -hmm. And resolving for ourselves and for customers why Avis and why budget, I think, is our North Star. And I, and I think we're onto some really great things. And I think, uh, you know, you should see. So what was your remit from your board and your CEO coming into the job? So they obviously want to change. They brought you in. Yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. So, yeah. So the remit was let's bring some of that. Let's bring some of that expertise that we had heard about from me personally about how I have asserted, you know, these iconic brands and, and garnered the, uh, the attention and the interest and loyalty uh, for these great brands. And yeah, I feel really privileged. I, you know, I, I like kind of remarking about how I'm this like, kid from Queens that has taken on this like audacious responsibility of these, you know, these iconic brands and being entrusted with the money of stakeholders um, to, to, to drive that interest and, and that loyalty. You talked about brand purpose at Weight Watchers. Yep. Uh, What's that concept mean at Avis Budget? Is it a relevant concept? Do you talk about brand purpose there? Do you feel like you have one? Uh, we try harder was an attitude. Yeah. So tell me about brand purpose in your current role. Is it something you're that is meaningful, relevant, or not? Um, it is meaningful and it is relevant, but I have to be honest, it's not at the core of the discussion. More at the core of the discussion is really, again, resolving why Avis and why budget at the more, uh, I, I, I guess I'll say transactional level, like day in and day out, people are making a choice about their car rental and they want a, a, they want a company and a brand that they can feel good about, that they can trust, that they feel is going to do right by them. So I think for both brands, it's, we really have to kind of resolve that and, and, and articulate in a really meaningful and modernized way, like why Again, why Avis and, and why budget? So, yeah, the, the bigger, broader question of purpose, as much as we had talked while I was at Weight Watchers, is, is not as pronounced. Mm -hmm. And I think it's with good reason. I mean, this is a category that is, it's, um, I mean, it's, a, it's an intense dogfight. I mean, you, you got, it's, a, it's highly competitive. And, and to a large extent, customers are approaching it as like, what have you done for me lately? What, what was that last 
interaction and experience that I had with the brand. And, um, and so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really important to kind of hone in at the, at the experience level, like what promises are we making and how are we delivering and fulfilling those promises day in and day out. So how do you measure success on that? Yeah. I mean, we, we hold NPS near and dear to our hearts, like net promoter score promoter and understand, score. yeah. And understanding like how good have we been day in and day out at servicing, you know, the needs of our, of our customers, which is why we try harder harder than everybody else, like being, having just this relentless pursuit of doing right by our customers is something that, I mean, it existed 30 years ago. And, and I know that's, that's been one of the things that has inspired me as I've gone out to the field. I've spent a lot of time with our, with our colleagues and um, yeah, day in and day out, they take an incredible amount of pride in, in doing right by, doing right by customers. You know, the likes of you and me, you know, we, we, we travel quite a bit, you know, it's, you know, we, we come across a lot of different curveballs during our travels, sure. you know, delays, weather, whatever it may be. And so when you get, when you get to that counter or when you, you know, when you're interacting with our app, like you want a really seamless and expedient experience. You want, you want somebody that's got your back and somebody's going to do right by you. So you brought up this ad campaign, you know, which I think started in the early sixties, we try harder yeah. and ran through 2013. Yeah, it was, it was until or? about like 10 or 15 years ago that we stopped running it here. Is that long ago? Okay. It was about 10 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Super. Yeah. So not that I want to get down this track too much, but it is one of the iconic campaigns ever. Mm -hmm. And to leave a campaign is a tough decision. Agreed. You know, yes. uh, I was on the GIF brand team at P&G when we dropped Choose Your Mother's Choose GIF. Yeah. And we brought it back. You know, uh, Intel Inside dropped that. You know, should they bring that back? Yeah. So tell me about that. I mean, the attitude behind that is really powerful. Agreed. Yeah. And people still like the attitude. Yeah. So why was it dropped? What can we learn about that? You know, I'm sure it was dropped by smart people for smart reasons. Yeah. So what tell tell us a bit about that. I, I agree I agree with the premise. I agree that it was dropped probably for very good reasons, because uh, there were some very smart people on the business at the time. And where we go from here, I think I, I want to kind of leave it to people to kind of see like what takes place uh, next year. But I I I do agree you know, because it's interesting, you had the, uh, you know, the GIF experience. I had the same experience with Tosa Strudel. So Tosa Strudel was on like a, like a great year-on-year -year growth trajectory during the like a Pop-Tart, but better. And somebody came along um, and said, this feels too amateurish. This feels too sort of functional and utilitarian in nature. Why don't we go for like a more emotional driven proposition to really get at the hearts of mothers? And so we went at this stuff is so good, it's going to change the mood of your entire morning, moms. And it completely changed the trajectory of the business for the, for the bad. Yeah. And, and amongst that truly, truly loyal mom, she said, yeah, you know what, you, you are right. It does change the, the mood of the entire morning. But for a great many mothers, it said, that is an audacious thing that you just said. Like, my mornings are chaotic. And so for you to really assert that this is going to change the mood of the entire morning a stretch. Is, is ridiculous yeah. and not my morning. Like maybe other parts too of much of a stretch from the too product much of a itself, stretch. Right? And yeah. And so you really got to, you really got to hone in on the life cycle of the brand. Like where is it in its life cycle? And at that point it was a little too early. And as you just mentioned, it was too much of a stretch. And so, so yeah. So why exactly that decision was made 10 years ago? I can't really speak to it. And then where are we going to go from here, I think is also something that I want to keep you a lot of folks in, in suspense. 
Good. Can't wait. <laughs> so you're in this crazy dynamic space of mobility, mobility and yeah. transportation. So how do you, have you driven, have you been in, in a, an autonomous car, self-driving car yet? I have not been in a uh, in an autonomous vehicle just yet. And you own, you own Zipcar, uh, of course, which is a disruptor. Yeah. So from your seat, kind of where is transportation going? Where is it going? I mean, it, it is going towards a, a more seamless, more expedient um, experience. And will and, ownership be as important? I mean, ownership is not as important, important today. Today, and that's going to keep going. Yeah, and, and yeah, and I think less. I mean, the the amount of safety benefits that are going to come with autonomous driving, the amount of time that people are going to save from autonomous driving, I think it's I think it's going to be incredibly powerful. I mean, I'm looking forward to the fact. I mean, I live 30 miles 30 miles outside of New York City, and it takes me an hour and a half sometimes to get into uh, into the city. The fact that I can actually get into an autonomous vehicle in the future and not have to worry about it and just kind of roll right into uh, right into the office is going to be pretty powerful. Um, so you're not a skeptic. You think it's coming? It oh will yeah, come no, it's not. It's not if it's coming. It's when. when? And uh, and my daughter's worried about it though. My younger daughter is worried. She's you know she's like, hey dad, do me a favor, like just make sure you hang on to that, to one of the cars, because uh, I want to be able to drive when I when I get older. So yeah, like it's not it's not if it's coming, it's definitely coming. Tell me about Zipcar. What role that has in your portfolio? Yeah. So it, you look out over that. I don't look over that. So I have oversight over the rental brands, right. the core oh, rental the brands. So mm-hmm. yeah, so Avis and Budget mm-hmm. and Payless. And then there's a team out of Boston that oversees the, uh, the Zipcar proposition. What have you learned from them since you've been with the company? Yeah, so they are operating around, they, they do talk much more about purpose because in shared ownership of the vehicle, I think there are a lot of really great benefits that come out of that from an environmental perspective and from a social perspective. And so they, they talk quite a bit um, about that. And so Cheryl Kaplan, who's, uh, you know, mm-hmm. she, she should make her way on to here if she hasn't already. We'd love to have her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, uh, she's great, great marketer. And so she's overseeing that brand. And so she and I are comparing notes quite a bit. She's, I'm tapping into her and to her, her um, you know, she spent some, a really good amount of days with uh, Dunkin' Donuts and, and a part of that turnaround. And so she and I compare notes with one another. Um, but yeah, no, so we, uh, we connect quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So what do you love about this job and what drives you crazy? What I, yeah, so what I love, what I love about this job is that there is a, every day there is quite a bit of interest in terms of like how marketing is pivoting towards really being able to make an imprint, not only just on the organization, but also I think in the marketplace. Um, so that's what I love about that. And I also love the competitive nature of it. I love, um, and, and I love that so there the are marketing scope and impact is expanding. It's expanding. Yeah. And, uh, and, and more and more eyes and ears are tuning into like how marketing truly can make, make an impact from an ROI standpoint, as well as like a brand building standpoint. And I think that's one of the discussions that I had, you know, when I was, um, talking to senior folks about taking on this role. I mean, what they really loved hearing from me is it wasn't just about building brands, but it was also from a performance marketing standpoint, how we were going to make our dollars work really, really um, hard for us. Anything drive you crazy about the job or, or you wish would go better or faster? Uh, well, I like, I like a little crazy and yeah. I, like, uh, I like a little ambiguity and I, I kind of like to freestyle. So, uh, so yeah, no, nothing's driving me too crazy 
Uh, and, and then there's just my team. Like I, I, uh, I have the privilege of working with some folks that are embracing change and they're, they're really open to it. They're really open, open to a lot of the change that we're embarking on, which has been really great to see. How do you balance the, if you will, the brand building side of this, the image building and the performance marketing? Yeah. I've talked to some companies who separate it. Yeah. Some will integrate it. I mean, how do you think about that? How do you manage it? How do you organize for that? Yeah, so on a, on a personal level, I think one of the reasons why I've been able to make the transition is a couple of things. One, I have this math degree that I think today I think about that, and I don't know who that person was that decided that embarking on a math degree would be a good idea. And then my first job out of college was working in direct direct marketing, direct mail, like you know, working in acquisition and then doing the lifetime value analysis of all the different ways. And I mean, we were doing A-B testing before A-B testing was a thing. And so that has now come around full circle so that having that kind of very that, that critical thinking and that ROI kind of sensibility mm-hmm. and that lifetime value sensibility has served me really well. because so I feel like that's boomerang back to be of such importance. But in the interim, I have been able to truly groom these like brand building sensibilities around really being empathetic around like who is that strategically valued c- customer that we want to serve and what is going on and in their heads and in their hearts that they need to hear from us to garner that interest and that loyalty. And so bridging those two things together, I think is one of the things that I, I bring to the table. The other thing is I've kind of coined this notion of like stratocution. I, I'm, I'm not the not the uber strategist and I'm not the uber executional individual. I'm somewhere in that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's an agile process right now. Like sure. strategy is only as good as your ability to execute, yep. but execution also should inform and can inform strategy. And so keeping those two things like kind of tightly integrated and being kind of in a very agile fashion, like addressing strategy and execution kind of in real time and massaging them both is something that I, I feel I have a knack for where um, so bridging brand equity building meets performance and this like notion of stratocution, mm-hmm. which some of my agency partners, uh, they kind of get a chuckle out of it, but they're like, we've heard that from you, but wow, like, yeah, you are like, it's like stratocution is a really good way to describe you. And it's, uh, it served me well. Yeah. Have you changed the setup of the marketing department to be more agile, to work in more yeah, sprint so teams? I've, yeah. So I've got, I've got nine, nine directs, whereas before it was, you had kind of these mini, mini fiefdoms, but now it's, it's very lean because I kind of like to, going back to the stratocution, I kind of like to get into it. Um, and the other is, I think one of the keys to success is, you know, this notion of OKRs and having objectives and key results mm-hmm. in a very sprint-like fashion organized for folks. Like the number one thing that leads to a high level of engagement amongst team members is just knowing what's expected of you. And, and when you're going through so much change and when you have a new leader, and when you're trying to make a pivot around what the impact of marketing can be in an organization, I think having these OKRs, having a, a really great set of expectations between myself and my directs, my directs and their, the teams that they're leading and having very clear expectation settings um, is, I think, one of the true keys to having a, a highly engaged uh, team. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So, you know, the first part of your career, you were in CPG on a, and a couple of different companies. Then you went to Weight Watchers, which is CPG and service. 
Yep. And now you're very much in a service business, customer experience business. Yeah. Do you love that about the current role versus earlier ones? I, I do. I do love that about the role, and I, I the transition to Weight Watchers for me was was so great because I do have this notion of wanting to be heard and wanting to please, wanting to um, deliver on promises made, and so like Weight Watchers is that um, Avis budget is that, and so and so yeah, I think both of these like this transition over to service. Has has just done really it's done really well by me, um, but I also think there's a little bit of serendipity going on. Like one of the I joined Weight Watchers because there was a prior CEO and president that I had worked on when I ran the gum business in the U.S. So I ran Trident and Dentine and Stride, and uh, and a couple of individuals kind of pulled me, you know, pulled so you me followed a leader Watchers. in that. In yeah, that case, they yeah. they they said, we know you, we know how you tick, and we think you'd be a great fit. And to be honest with you, during a lunch meeting, I kind of was not necessarily convinced. I, I, I wanted to just interrogate that just a little bit more. I loved, I was flattered, but I also, I didn't kind of understand whether, but, they, but what they, what seemed to click for me is like, you are a really empathetic individual. Like you stop and really try to get underneath, you know, the, the, the people that we're trying to serve and the customers that we're trying to address. And so that empathetic gene that I have about me, they felt like would serve me really well. And it, and it really did. And I think that's why I was then able to quickly unlearn some of my CPG plays in my CPG playbook, um, because I realized that some of those things were just not going to apply in that category. And I think, you know, if, if you look at the Weight Watchers journey, I mean, it's, it's incredibly reactive to marketing uh, and, and innovation. And, uh, and, and I think if you interrogate that a little bit more and you think and you go through the leaders that have been a part of Weight Watchers when it's been at its best and, maybe, and when it's not been at its best, to a large extent, it has had to do with have those leaders been able to unlearn some of that playbook that they come into the franchise with, like whatever category they may be coming from, because it is, a, it is an incredibly unique category. That's a category where your critical thinking and your intuition need to be really uh, in sync with one another. Like you can't test your way to success in that category. A lot of false reads, a lot of false positives and false negatives as it relates to like research. Like sure. you, can't, you can't have research solve all the answers for you. Like it's, you gotta have some instincts and, and intuition about you in things, that category. Right? And try things, yeah, 100%. Yep. So now you're in the service business. So who do you admire? Who do you benchmark when you think about delivering a wonderful customer experience? What kinds of companies does your team talk about, admire, maybe even visit? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we hold we hold it. Well, we have our e-commerce business that's incredibly important to us, but, and we also have service. So we're looking at the likes of an Amazon. We're looking at the likes of a Zappos. We're looking at the likes of an American Express from a loyalty perspective. We've got, we've got so much going on in this, in this, on this business because it is, it's, it's, it's about acquisition. It's about servicing. And it's also about driving loyalty. And so, which for me is exciting, although the more I talk about it, the more I feel like I got I to gotta get back to work because uh, <laughs> right. there's a lot going on. Well, but go yeah, the, the footprint, yeah, no, the footprint of the role is, is very wide. And so we are benchmarking across a lot of different categories to get as smart um, as possible. So I want to close out the back end of this podcast with a series of questions about leadership. Uh, because I think you're a pretty remarkable leader with amazing experiences. So we, I want to get kind of under the hood on that, if you will. Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so who's been your most influential mentor in your career? Hmm. So I've, um, 
you know, I'll, I'll mention them by name. So there, there are two leaders. One actually is from your prior stomping ground of Procter & Gamble and Mike Ferry. Um, and, and another is Les Yalisi, who's now the CMO over at Sam Adams. So they were, they for me were incredible leaders, um, also people to work for. And you worked and, with them at what company? So at, uh, for Mike, I worked with him at Campbell Soup. So he's the one where I, he, he really let me go and kind of become the godfather of kids marketing at, at Campbell Soup. And then Les Yalisi, um, both at uh, Cadbury when I ran the gum business with Trident and then Teen and Stride. And then she's one of the, she's one of the folks that brought me back and brought me into the fold at Weight Watchers. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I have, and I have thanked them for this is like when I was working for them where they, they entrusted in me a lot of accountability, but along with the accountability is they, they provided me with the decision rights. You know, I think, I think a bad formula is when you're being held accountable for results. Yeah but you're not giving the responsibility or the decision rights to drive that home. Yep. That, is a, that is a bad formula. Nobody wants to live that life where you're being held accountable for something, but you're not being given the, you know, the set of decision rights to just, to just drive it and, and get it done. And, and I think those, those were, for me, that for me was a great formula of success at Campbell's and at Weight Watchers. I mean, at, at Weight Watchers, it was, it, I mean, the team that I had of about 35 marketers were held incredibly accountable for driving new members into the franchise. And we were given a lot of decision rights around like how to drive that with our agency partners and, and, and internally. And, and it was powerful. I mean, it was, it was, I got up in the morning and went to sleep at night thinking about, thinking about how to just, you know, become better and better day in and day out because I felt like it resided on myself and my team to really drive those results. No, it's such a fundamental insight. But if if someone out there listening is thinking about switching jobs, ask that question. If you're going to be accountable for results, are you going to be given the freedom to make decisions to achieve the results? Yeah. And a lot of times, look at the prior folks that have been in those roles and and check in with them Mm -hmm. and check in with, because I have been in situations where during the interview process, I do ask that question and it, and it gets told to me that yes, you will be accountable and yes, you will have the decision rights. And then it, it actually doesn't come to fruition as much as it is, it is um, depicted uh, during the interview process. So, so what I've learned is just to kind of check in with uh, some folks that have been in that role and, and see how, how that formula is really uh, shaken out in the past. What's the best day in your career? The best? day in my career so far <laughs> what is the best day in my career i think it was a pretty special moment when i when i met oprah when i when i met oprah i mean she's uh she i just think she's an incredible you know incredible person incredible you know individual and uh and and as a just as a as a as a human being as a as a marketer as a as a as a business person i think I think interacting with her and her team was uh, was pretty special. And I mean, she just has a. I, I've I'd met many celebrities, you know, having been at Pepsi for a bit. Um, you know, you come across celebrities quite a bit, uh, but but that she just hasn't. She transcends an, it. Transcends it. Aura about her that is uh, that is pretty special. Mm-hmm. And and she's had an impact on me, like this notion of of being like operating with a sense of purpose and being intentional in your actions um, and being true to core. I mean, it, it's definitely a it's it's definitely a filter through which I put you know my actions and my interactions with my kids, my my wife, my 
family. It's uh, it's it was so it's been pretty had, impactful. You've had Oprah as a coach. That's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> so it was cool. pretty it was pretty special. Yeah. So what's the worst day in your career? Is the worst day? I gotta say, like, there's not one moment. That, You're an optimist, I know. But yeah, yeah, a, yeah. Was there a time that there was? Yeah, this was early, early days. This was early days, um, where I, it, you know. You've lived this, where all of a sudden you're a you're a player that then transitions into being a coach, and that transition is pretty abrupt. And you, I mean, I, I don't know how it was done at PNG, but I think you don't get a manual. All of a sudden, it's like, well, you you witness the coach, and therefore, I'm sure you know how to be a coach. And and that for me was um, you know my early days when I first started managing folks and being able to provide feedback. In a and way, many of them were friends, right? Because yeah, they were peers before fair. you were promoted. Yeah. So, for me, the the opportunity to pro to provide feedback in a way that gets internalized really constructively and where it makes a, a a very positive impact, regardless of whether or not it's positive impact or constructive feedback, I think approaching feedback as a gift, um, as the deliverer of it and as the recipient of it, is something that I learned early on is is actually a skill and something that that um that can that can lead to really great things but it can also go sideways if uh if if you're not incredibly mindful about the approach how do you be a great dad of four kids and a great husband and a great business leader so you know something that i talk to my team about is what, what i don't believe in which because i'm a shock jock a little bit and you know I, I i throw down these like assertions that at first people are like oh my goodness where is this guy coming from so i do not subscribe to work-life balance I think that is an antiquated viewpoint. I think it pits family versus work. And I just don't think that's the life that we're living right now. I think it is about work-life integration. You know, I think I find myself during halftime of my girls' soccer game thinking about how we're going to solve that business problem. Um, and, uh, and while I'm at work, I think about, you know, this home that we may or may not be buying because my wife is enamored with this home that's two miles away from where we currently Good live. Good luck with that. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, uh, so I think it's work-life integration. And, you know, and I think, I think it's not so much about the hours that you're physically spending in the office, but as much about how truly vested you are um, in, the, in the hours um, where they may not be expected that you're, t you know, you're spending literally at work. And, uh, and just getting all, and just being all about the results. So I think it's just that work-life integration. So what's a brand right now in your life that you would really miss if it went away? This is kind of an odd one, but um, I, I'm really digging my, like, uh, my Toyota Camry hybrid. Like, I, I'm really, I, I don't know, it feels, it feels responsible. It feels zippy. Um, I've, I shocked my kids with that car. Is it new? You yeah, just yeah. Bought it? yeah, I just bought it. And, uh, you know, my kids were like, Dad, like, where where's the luxury vehicle? Like what's going on? So I, I don't know, it's something maybe just sign of the times. I felt like it, it just felt like a responsible choice, but both for the environment, for myself, and uh, and it's got a little zip to it. And uh, and I also caught my kids' attention, so it led to some discussion. It's kind of hard to get my teenagers to react to anything. So I think the fact that I bought that car, they're like, Dad, this is like not luxury. Okay, the marketing campaign that you really admire these days. So. I have not had Kentucky Fried Chicken in a long time, and I've just just gone back. Like I went back and and now and I brought my kids. My, my wife wasn't ecstatic about that move, but uh, but I mean just the way that they've brought the Colonel back and kind of he's. I just think the way they brought that like that icon back because I was a fan back in the day, 
And, you know, I kind of took a respite from the brand for, I don't know, more than like 20 years. So just the way that they've brought them back. They'll they'll love hearing this. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, there's probably a couple of pounds riding around in, uh, in here right now. So, yeah. So when I do go to KSU, I, it, it is yeah. mindful. It is mindful when I when I step in there and have my my two piece uh, meal. But yeah, and my and my kids are like, Dad, that's pretty good. It's good. It's good food. <laughs> it's good. Food. So the next PNG person running it used to run, there, used there to work in Old Spice. A lot yeah, of the same yeah. principles of bringing back Old Spice in the current. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, um, what's the coolest campaign you've ever done? Um, is it something at Pepsi? Something you're yeah, doing now? They, so I ran. So at Pepsi, I ran the um, energy category, and there was a brand um, that came from Mountain Dew, but it was Amp. Yep. And so we were trying to. Com- we were competing in the energy space, and we were competing with the likes of Red Bull and Monster. And we came up with the the insight because for me, a great campaigns always are rooted in an insight. And the insight that came about in that campaign was that the most raw, visceral form of energy is when you anticipate the thing, not the thing itself. So we would talk to millennials and say, like, when are you like really jazzed? And they're like, well, I'm jazzed around five o'clock on a Friday when I'm thinking about where we're going. The funny thing is we end up at the same bar with the same guys doing the same thing, but between five and six o'clock, my mind is racing Racing, with all kinds of like crazy things that we may be up to. So the energy of anticipation became the the proposition for the brand. And we came up with a campaign about the moment before the moment. And we've been working with the likes of Dale Earnhardt Jr. and a lot of like action sports uh, celebrities. And so it became a great campaignable, about, campaignable idea about really depicting what was going on in the heads and hearts of Dale before he was gonna get behind the wheel. Not when he was in the wheel, like not when he was actually driving around that track, but getting, but the moments before that. And so we work with Common in the moment before he was going to take the stage and how he would get together with his entourage in the locker room and kind of the ritual that he would take on before getting, you know, and before taking the stage. And and it was pretty amazing. Like it was, it's not something that many people talk about. They talk about like when the person's on the court Mm -hmm. or on the field or on the stage, but kind of coming through it from like a very insightful place and a fresh place. And it also helped me make use of a lot of celebrities that, um, you know, that kind of came together really in service of that one overarching idea as opposed to kind of having these disparate narratives that, that were in service of the one thing. And I was, uh, that was great. That was great. The funny thing is we also got a couple of teenagers that had never gotten a tattoo. And we put them into, we got them into a tattoo parlor in Los Angeles, one of the most seedy tattoo parlors ever. And it was the moment before them getting their very That's first adrenaline. tattoo. And, and one kid like just turned pale with sweat running down his face. And he literally just, he, the production, like just, he just left us all standing there because he took off. Luckily we had a backup. <laughs> Did you get a tattoo? No, no. It's, uh, it's been on the bucket list. I, I just can't. I just can't figure out which uh, which tattoo to get, but yeah, it's uh, it's on the bucket. List. It's on the list. It's okay. on the list. How about you? You have a tattoo? It's on my list too. My <laughs> wife and I have an idea. We haven't executed it yet. I can tell you about that all, offline. Okay. So one Sounds final good. question. This has been a great conversation, by the way. Appreciate full it. of lessons and richness and uh, insights. So thank you. Yeah, no, and I want to ask you, who else would you like to hear in the CMO podcast? Yeah, as I mentioned, I think Cheryl Kaplan would be great. Okay. Yeah, no, she's doing some really good things with Zipcar. And I think, again, that sense of purpose, that fun. sense of social responsibility. And, uh, and also having made the transition, how do you go from Dunkin' Donuts over to Zipcar? And how, you know, but, but I think there are some really great lessons uh, to be had. Okay, we'll book that. her. 
Thank you. Sounds good. Thanks. It was fabulous. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Maurice Herrera. What I loved about this one is when I asked him about the most defining moment of his career, he said it was meeting Oprah. And he talked about the aura she has, and he's learned so much from working with her when they work together on Weight Watchers. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.